It's a privilege now to introduce our two evangelist speakers for this evening. We'll hear first from Manny Mill and then from Daniel Bear. So let me introduce them to you now. Manny Mill leads Koinonia House National Ministries, whose desire and mission is to bridge the gap between the Christian inmates and the local church. They have been doing this for about 30 years, and they have been facilitating the integration of the former inmate into the church, workplace, and society through biblical discipleship. After Manny speaks, we'll hear from Daniel Bear. He, is, uh, he leads Inglewood Family Outreach, giving oversight to the activities of the ministry, providing trainee, training on issues related to poverty and the gospel, and he connects with ministry partners. His desire, his vision, is to see Inglewood become a neighborhood where those in the community will want to stay and make it a better place for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so we're going to hear from Manny first, and then Daniel will come right up after him. So let's go ahead and welcome our evangelist, Manny. Come on up. Hallelujah. Hi, Mike. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for giving me this opportunity to come before your holy throne of grace as we sang so beautifully this evening with these amazing young people that worship with us tonight. So I pray, Father God, that you will make us receptive to receive and retain what you have me to say, that we may be able to respond and obey without delay. For your glory, I pray in the name of Jesus and in the, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. People ask me, what do you bring to us, man? This is called the transformer. And I brought this because not only this uh, those, uh, represents those behind bars, but also because everything that we sang tonight, uh, tonight boils down to this. Because you see, Jesus, who you all know pretty well, came as a prisoner. I want you to really think about that truth. Christ, Jesus, very God, became men with a mission to die, not just a simple death. He came to die the death on the cross. And therefore, this is my motivation, hopefully it is also yours, to be able to fulfill that great commission, going to all the worlds, into all the world, to every nation, right? But I think that we've forgotten about one nation. It is the nation of the prisons. Uh, let me tell you three things tonight. Number one, uh, the problem. And how we're going to bring a diagnosis to it. I have my doctor here with me uh, tonight, so he's a good doctor. Like he gives me all kinds of, you know, diagnosis. I mean, he just did surgery on me, and he hurt me, you know, a few weeks ago. But anyway, what is the problem, and then why do we participate in what we participate? You see, we don't do anything. 
we only participate in the finished work of Christ. If we say that we're doing this, we're doing that, that could bring pride up in you. So we only participate in the finished work that Jesus already performed for us on the cross with his blood that he shed for us. He made payment for everything that we need. So I want to tell you why we participate and then how we go about it in just a few minutes that my friend Kurt gave me. Give me 10 minutes. This morning, I spoke for an hour and a half in Chicago. So I'm all wired up right now. <laughs> we have over 90 million people impacted in America by incarceration, directly impacted. I'm, I am talking about inmates. I'm talking about their family members. I am talking about people on parole. People who are going to the court system, about 90 million people. That's a big number, isn't it? But we don't think about it because you know why? Out of sight, out of mind. We know that there's a jail right here on Canifan Road. But we never go there. We never do. But yet we are commanded by Scripture... To go and visit Jesus in the jail. Not a criminal. Oh, I didn't do that. I live in Wheaton. So what? You are a... Also, you have committed a few crimes. My mentor, Chuck Coulson, said to me, Manny, we got caught. They haven't yet. (laughs) So there are 90 million people impacted directly. They come from broken homes. They are no fathers. And yet, 80% of them also are fathers. And if we don't do something about it as a church, because we know that the society is not going to do nothing about it, because we have the truth, we have the gospel, right? We have the message of hope, and we live in this tension, you know, this healthy tension that, John calls us to live in chapter 1 of John that we have to live in the tension of truth and grace. And we have to be able to live healthy in those two truths. But 80% of them have children. And if we don't do something about those children, then they're going to become criminals. So, I am motivated every day, and that's why we wrote the book, Radical Prayer, to introduce inmates, ex-inmates, their family members, and the church to God the Father. Because God the Father promised to protect us and to provide for us. Our slogan is, Building Bridges to Restore Hope. And hope means helping others pursue eternity. Hope means helping our people everywhere. And guess what? They are in prison. Let me just reveal a little news to you guys. Anybody can make it to prison. Don't you think because you're in Wheaton that you cannot make it to prison? You can. So... And then our other slogan is, we pray radically, through radically, 
Because that's exactly what Jesus' example is to me. Jesus was a man of prayer. He continues to be. He's right at the right hand of the Father, along with the Spirit of God, in a sitting for me. So therefore, I want to enter into that love affair with, with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is also my older brother, to be able to pray for those behind bars. So, if it is true, which I know it is, that Jesus became an inmate, and if you read the Old Testament, it's throughout the entire, I mean, he was going to come to set the captives free. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 63, Isaiah 61. I mean, it is through the scriptures. But then in the New Testament, we find a guy by the name of Paul, who was Saul, who wrote half of the New Testament, including the masterpiece of the book of Romans. And he himself became a prisoner. And he himself was a former serial killer. Wow. God is going to use serial killer. And in this church, we read Romans and we read Colossians and we read, yeah. And you know who wrote that? A former serial killer. That was, I mean, that's pretty significant. And he teaches us. In verse 14, chapter 1 of Romans, that we are in debt to the grace that we receive. I go into prison. You know why? Because I'm in debt to the grace of God. And the word grace means equal to power plus ability. And radical prayer is what? Is me and you becoming a radical partaker praying with unashamed audacity to our Father because we want Him to do the impossible. Because you see, not to pray for the impossible is to offend God. And if there's a time in history that we have to pray for the impossible, it's today. I see that in America. I don't know about you, but I see that in America. But I'm not afraid of anything. You know why? Because love conquers fear. It really does. It does. But then I go to the book of Colossians, for example, who, about, who, who, by the way, the apostle Paul was in prison when he wrote that. <laughs> and then we go to chapter 3, verse 11, and I said, listen, Christ came for the Jew. came for the Greek. He came for the slave. came for the free. Ah, and he also came for the barbarian. Who are those guys? The prisoner. He also came for the Cynthia. Who are those guys? People cannot, cannot speak that they didn't go to school or within college that don't have a degree like you and I do. I have it all by grace. I went to school with my, with my friend Chad here, but I didn't qualify to go into Wheaton. So my friend Chuck Coulson got me in. <laughs> it's about who you know, right? <laughs> Uh, my friend Joe Colson and Ken Wesner got, got me in. Then I got to meet Dave Geezer. Who, by the way, he's been with me to Angola, Louisiana prison. Where we have been able to help plant 27 churches in prison. With inmate pastors. With the Bible college in the prison. He saw it. He's a witness. And then, then we took that idea and we transferred it to Danville, Illinois, and now we have a complete seminary there, and then three more in Indiana. But let me end with this. So how do we go about it? Well, number one, 
we have to become like they do. Christ became like us. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of guys dying in prison because of the COVID-19 and because every prison has been locked down, locked down, that should not stop you because you pray for the impossible to, for him to open doors. So now we're going more into the county jail. Now we have more people coming every Thursday night to radical time out, find out more about it. And we meet at Compass Church in Wheaton every Thursday night. Because we have more family members who are in need because they have sons and daughters that they cannot see. So we are there to love them radically. And we have wardens and, and chaplains and counselors that now, so we have now a new vision for the ministry. And then God gave me a vision a long time ago. How about, he told me, how about if we can plan together praying in churches in prison? That's, that is different. Not just a church. There's a church in every corner. No, 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 no. Praying churches in prison. Because Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer for, for the nations. And you have made it into a house of thieves because you're not praying. You are praying to yourself. And therefore, you become a thief of God's glory. So we just, together with my friends at High Point Church here in Wheaton, my friend Ron Zapia, who I've known for 22 years, a big guy too. We just planted our first praying church in the worst prison in the Midwest, Stabio Prison, in Crescio, Illinois. And let me end with this. Let me tell you about the grace of God. I've been going in for almost more than 30 years. I've been probably to thousands and thousands of prisons and jails all over the world. There's a man by the name of Rodney Massey, who I began to, to disciple when he was locked up. For 20 years, we had the privilege of meeting him at the gate. See, we, we not only participate in the inside, because you see, if you make the baby, you must get, take care of the baby. But you also meet him at the gate. And we bring him into a church. And we get them mentors and we put a fence of love around them so they don't have to jump the fence again and go back to Egypt. Egypt means the world and imprisonment and drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. So we met Rodney Massey at the gate eight years ago. Now he's on our board of directors. And I mean, amazing testimony. I mean, he had a 50-year sentence. So 25 years inside bars. The most joyful human being you will ever meet. And I took him to one of the meetings. Now, just think about the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy of the prison system. To get a, 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 a Christian praying in church in prison, that's crazy. But not to pray for the impossible is to offend God, you see. So I'm seeing God surprising us big time, left and right. So now High Point met my friend, Ronnie Massey, and they just hired him, paid, to lead our first praying campus, church campus, in Estateville. We're also doing the same thing with Compass Church as well right now in Sheridan. So I, I give you a bit of a vision. Because you see, Christ is coming back for a colorful bride. Let me just put it that way, and then you take it to whatever you want to take it. 
if you want to become a colorful bride, plant a praying church in prison. And then open the arms of your church to, to bring him to you, to your church. Is it risky? You bet it is. Of course it is. But to be a Christian is to be risky, isn't it? Isn't it? Didn't God took a risk with you? And with me especially? So, ask God to help us be faithful. Let me end with this. James 4, 17 says, If I know how to do good, and I don't do it, I sin. And sin will separate you from the joy of knowing the Father. So I want to love you and challenge you as my sisters and my brothers tonight. To remember that Christ became a prisoner. And therefore, you and I have no choice. No choice. No choice. But to love the prisoner. And to love their families. And the ex-prisoner. And the pre-prisoner. I'll be happy to talk to you at the table. Maybe you don't want to talk to me again after this. But that's all right. Thank you very much. Bless you. Well, that's great. It's a, I guess we call this a, a potpourri of preaching. You get two for the price of one. It'll be, it'll be a little different. I'm not, I'm not uh, going to be dancing around the front as much. Um, thank you. Thank you for that encouragement um, and word. Um, I'm Daniel. I'm, I'm serving in Inglewood, where I've been for 20 years now. And uh, in the midst of turmoil that we've seen from BLM protests to defund the police movements to many have noticed a spike in homicides, especially over the past couple years, uh, we at Inglewood Family Outreach feel this urgent need to do something. And, and the question is, how do we fight this fight? And even as I prepared this presentation for this evening, I was sitting in Inglewood working on this, and I look across the street, and our two nearest neighbors, one of them has a window that's, that's still plastered with, with five bullet holes from three weeks ago at two in the morning, a drive-by happened while this, this older lady was asleep in the front room right there where the bullets went over her head. I, I, I smell the air and, and, and the, the fumes of marijuana waft from an open window of a, of a car that just screeched down the street. I, I hear the, the whirring of helicopters and, and police sirens screeching down the street in, in search of some violent offender. My senses bombarded by brokenness, some of which Manny just talked about. And so, so I ask, how do, we, how do we fight the good fight in Inglewood? First, we recognize that our battle in the midst of this chaos is not against flesh and blood, as, as Paul says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so remembering this, we reach out to our neighbors, one family, one person at a time. I, I'm reminded of, the, of this crowd of people that were satiated, having, having feasted upon this wonder bread and fish produced by this upstart from Nazareth. 
You remember the story from, from John 6? What do they make of this man who can, who can turn a, a small meal into food for thousands? Who cares? They gave us food. That, that seems to be their response. Jesus miraculously appears on the other side of the small sea and these people trek around to, to find him again and, and they know he didn't get into the boat and they said, how did you get here? And he says, why do you ask this? You're not actually seeking me. You're seeking a free meal. Listen to me, he says. I, I can give you bread, the real wonder bread, that, that will well up into eternal life. And they say, they say yes, give us this bread. Give us this bread. What, what do we need to do? We'll do anything. And what does he say? Believe. Believe. That's, that's the message of John is, is believe. And believe what? Jesus says, believe that I am the bread of life. If we give someone food and clothes and meet all of their physical needs but fail to point them to the bread of life, the author of creation, then we've ultimately failed in in our true mission. We've ultimately failed in offering true and lasting relief. So our our ministry must be Christ-centered. And I mean that for my ministry. I mean that for your ministry. It must be Christ-centered. And so I, I get to share with you a little bit tonight. Uh, when I was told I have 10 minutes, I said my joke usually takes 10 minutes. So I'll have to scratch that. Sorry, if you want to joke afterwards, come up. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll have some good times. Uh, but, but I do want to thank you all for, for years of, of encouragement and support. Uh, th- this is a hard ministry. It's, we, we have funerals all the time. And it's hard, to, it's hard to see these young men who have their whole lives ahead of them in a casket. And so thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the years of, of, of that. And I hope to offer you a little bit tonight as a thank you, a, a, a glimpse into some of the training we do. I, I do this hour-long training for five days when we have teams out. So I'm condensing five hours into an hour and a half here tonight. <laughs> so, uh, okay. I'll try to go quicker. Um, but, but I want to start with, with three, three true tales, that, that, as I call them. First is, is about Marcus, an African-American Chicagoan. Who, uh, he comes to our ministry and his, his heavy boot falls like stomp on the ground as he's coming in. And, and he always greets me with this huge smile. And, and this, his smile, you can see the gaps between his teeth that speak of a, uh, that tell the story of his life. 60 years old, two-thirds of his life, he spent 40 years as a homeless man in Chicago. And so I, I've built up a relationship with Marcus. He gave his life to Christ several years ago, and he's, he's working now, has a home, and he's a deacon at his church. And so I, I talked to him, and I said, I asked him, what, what should we do with the homeless people? And he said, don't give them money. He said, every cent I ever got, I spent on drugs. There are more effective ways to help the homeless. A friend of mine, Tim, shared a story about me of a time when he gave money to a different homeless man and he, this, he was walking and this homeless man asked for some money to buy booze. Okay, well, my friend appreciated his honesty and said, okay, you know, I, so the money exchanged hands. He found out that night that man was arrested for public intoxication. We can't give money to someone just to simply get them off our back and, and claim that how they spend it is between them and God. We 
bear at least some responsibility for that. There are more responsible ways to help the homeless. So then what about food? Many people have told me, you know, I I carry granola bars or apples or some other on-the-go sustenance to hand out to homeless beggars I'm sure to encounter on my urban excursion. And, okay, that's definitely better than giving money, but it doesn't get to the root of the problem. It's still not getting deeper where we need to get. It's also making ourselves the hero of the story. And so I say, third, there are more relational ways to help the homeless. So how can we more effectively, more responsibly, and more relationally help the homeless or or other poor people in need of physical assistance? And and so first thing I, I think it's important to notice is that there's this downward spiral of dependency that often develops out of our poverty relief efforts. So the first time you give someone The first time you give someone something, they're usually very grateful. Well, thank you so much. This is such a big help. But there's this relationship created then, this this giver and receiver relationship, this hierarchy. And then the next time you go and you give them again, you've you've cemented that that relationship. You've you've planted the seeds of, of this future relationship, what it's going to be. And so they may still express gratitude the second time, but then eventually it it gets to the point where the receiver says, oh, you know, I've been hoping you'd come back. And then it moves to this expectancy. Where have you been? I I needed this. And then ultimately dependency. So I call this the spiral of dependency. So how do we avoid that? It's a good question. We had had a Thanksgiving dinner that that a local church put on several years ago uh, before I'd really started thinking about some of these things. And this church wanted to have this really big Thanksgiving celebration. Ah, that's great. We're excited about this. They wanted to serve a lot of people, and they weren't disappointed. We, had, we have a small two-flat house that we served out of this, this small kitchen. They served 300 meals. It's like, wow, this is great. But toward the end, toward the end, we ran out of dinner rolls. And this guy comes in, and, and he is irate that he doesn't get a dinner roll. He's, he, is, he is angry. He's so angry he begins cursing out the, the volunteers that came there to serve him. And so there's frustration, there's anger on both sides of this story. And, and I realized that we had approached this event from the wrong angle. We were giving bread that would run out. We were giving bread that would run out when they needed relationship. We were giving relief. So every year since then, instead, we've, we've celebrated Thanksgiving with one to three families that we've invited to come celebrate with us. We eat a meal together. We don't, we don't run out of dinner rolls. Um, but we have this meal together. We celebrate what we're grateful for, the first thing being the one who gives us bread to eat, the one who gives us life. And, and so I, I think of the crowds that flocked to Jesus in John 6. They were looking to be filled with bread, but, but Jesus encouraged them to look to be fulfilled by the bread of life. Jesus knew the brokenness that was more devastating than the lack of daily bread. And he wanted to heal them. And so I say, poverty is first about brokenness. Broken relationships that begin with the broken relationship between the individual and God. 
And so I draw on, this, on the board when I'm doing this illustration, this big circle with a man in the middle and this broken relationship between God and him. And that's, that's the most important thing. That's the, the greatest void that separates people from the primary relationship for which they were created. And that's why every aspect of our ministry must include the gospel. We must be Christ-centered in every aspect of our ministry. Because if we're able to satisfy a poor person's need without pointing them to their greatest need, we have failed in the primary objection, ob- objective of our ministry. And then in this circle, secondarily, we have relationships between this poor person and others. We have the, the, a broken relationship between this poor person and, and his community. And we have a broken relationship between this poor person and the rest of creation. And, and everything else kind of falls into those three, three subcategories. The, the brokenness with individuals leaves the poor person covetous, angry, deceitful, and hostile toward others. His broken, broken relationship with his community is seen in, in his relationship with the police, with schools, with the church, and with other, other groups that would seek to help him in ineffective ways. And finally, his broken, broken relationship with creation is seen in, in uh, abuse of animals, uh, littering. You, if, you drive through, if you drive through Inglewood and look around out your window, you'll see the streets strewn with garbage. And so these broken relationships are, are what I say is the definition of poverty, what it means to be poor. And when we start with a definition of poverty, with, with that definition of poverty, it takes our discussion a different direction. And another thing it does is when we, when we describe poverty as these broken relationships, that person in the middle is, is not just the poor person, it's us. We all have these same broken relationships. And, and that shattered relationship with God is, is of paramount importance. But not only because it, it matters most, but because when that relationship is restored, there's a, a tension in these other broken relationships. You see, if, if God is God and my relationship with him is restored and, and I'm angry at this guy who killed my friend and I'm going to kill him, well, he's created in the image of God too. And so now that, that tension there demands to be restored. What do I do with that? We've sat down with, with guys from opposite sides of the gangs and said, well, you both say you believe in, in God, you're brothers now. And they're like, no, no, I'm not his brother. Well, You've got to do something with that. That, that tension is there. I can no, long, no longer look at my enemy as an enemy, but an image bearer of God, whom I am called to love. I can no longer treat my communities as, as something to use for my own benefit, but places where I'm called to use my gift for the good of all. I can no longer ignore the pollution that I create in order for my own selfish gains. But I must learn that it's, it's our duty to tend and care for creation. And so these, these tensions arise, arise once that relationship with God is restored. So when we define poverty as broken relationships, it will drastically impact how we approach poverty alleviation. We recognize that we are as broken as the broken people we are attempting to restore. When we do it, it will be impossible to ride in as, as the guy on the high horse 
you know, to, to be the hero. Rather, we'll realize that our brokenness leaves us up the same creek without a paddle, stuck. And realizing that will cause us to come with a, a humbleness that says, I need Christ. We, we talk about Christ-centered ministry. <laughs> it starts with realizing that, uh, that not the people you're going to serve, that, that they need Christ. It starts with realizing, I need Christ each day. And then you go and you tell other people, you, you want other people to see this. You want people to see these, these signs and wonders that Jesus did in the Gospel of John. You want them to see that and believe because they see it in the Gospel, but also because they see that that's what you need. If they see that, that we get by fine without Christ, how are we going to point them to Christ? If we want to have a Christ-centered ministry, it starts with us being Christ-centered. So I encourage each of us to embrace that, to recognize that we need Christ each day, to make that known, to show that to the world. I want to finish by, by reading this uh, uh, bit from John chapter 12. Uh, after Jesus has done some, some signs, he says, Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe it. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees. They did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let us not be deceived in, into thinking that the glory that comes from man is, is anything, worth anything. But the glory that comes from God is all. Let's, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are good, you are, you are glorious. Lord, we, we want to behold your glory. We want others that we come in contact with who don't know you to, to see that you are good, to see that you deserve all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. And so I pray that our lives would be marked as lives that are, are Christ-centered, gospel-focused. We think of the, the many that are blinded to the gospel, whether in prison, whether on the streets of Inglewood, whether in Wheaton, in our neighborhoods, in our households even, we pray that you would open their eyes to see you, to know you. I pray that we would be faithful in living lives that, that proclaim your good news to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.